You can turn with me to Mark 3. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 35. Um, I was a little ambitious when we put 13 to 35 in the worship guide, so we'll skip halfway down that first column and, and just kind of pick up there. How many of you have ordered something on the internet and then it came in and it was nothing like what you expected, right? We did it this last summer, a water table, you know, little toddlers splashing it in play. We were getting one for Lucy, she was a two at the time. And it looked like this great thing. It's two little kids standing by it, plenty of room. And then we get the box, and the whole box is like this big. Like that's going to come up to her knees. She's not going to be able to do anything with that. Um, fortunately, uh, online returns are a lot simpler than they used to be. So just take it to Kohl's, drop it off. They send it back, take care of it. But stuff like this happens all the time. There are meme generators for it. You know, you can put your own things in to get it on a meme. You can, you can Google what I expected versus what I got, and a thousand things will come up, and uh, some of them are funny. So if you want to do that later, that's up to you. But if you've been around Emmaus Road at all or been around Dan Breed at all, you've probably heard him talk about expectations. And he'll say the difference between expectations and reality is frustration, right? There's truth to that. When it's different than what we want, then it's different than what we expected, we get frustrated. If we're honest, we probably experience this frustration with Jesus when he doesn't meet our expectations. When what he gives us and how he works in our lives is very different from what we thought he would give us or what we really want. We have this picture in our mind of who Jesus is and what salvation is going to look like, how he's going to work in our lives and he often doesn't live up to it. So what do we do with that? We're going to see two groups this morning who are in a similar boat. Jesus' family, they've been with him his whole life. His mom raised him. His brothers grew up with him. And then these scribes from Jerusalem, these religious officials, who they're scribes because they would write the Bible out. They're the ones manufacturing copies of the Old Testament. They know it backwards and forwards. They teach it. So they should know who Jesus is, but they're both way off. So let's see how these two groups are feeling and thinking um, about what Jesus is saying and doing and see how Jesus responds to them. Let's read God's word. This is in Mark 3, starting in verse 20. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter... But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. 
for they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing on in the book of Mark this morning. And one of the main questions we've been talking about that um, we'll mention over and over as we're going through the book of Mark, that Mark is making us answer for ourselves is, who is Jesus? Mark gave us his thesis statement right up front. If you wrote those five-paragraph essays in middle school, you know, you write your thesis, and then you explain it, and then you restate it again at the end. Mark kind of does that. He writes it right up front. It says, Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And as we're going through the book, we're seeing what Jesus does and says, and we're measuring it up against that. We're saying, is it true? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? The promised one who will rescue his people. And if we're starting to be convinced of that, then we're also confronted with the question of how he will accomplish what he set out to do. What he's actually doing. What kind of Messiah is he? How does Jesus actually fit with the expectations that we have for him? We're only in chapter 3. 16 chapters, Uh, but so far we've seen that there seems to be this disconnect between what he's doing and what people are expecting. He keeps doing weird things. A leper comes up to Jesus. You're not supposed to touch lepers. It'll make you unclean. They're unclean, makes you unclean. What does Jesus do? Reaches out and touches him. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. Makes no sense. Goes against everything we've seen. Weird stuff. He's been healing people all over the place. Sick are coming to him. But then they had that paralytic lowered down in front of him. So what does he do? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Right? When only God can do that. But they didn't bring him for the sins. They brought him because he's paralyzed. Right? Jesus does these weird things. He upends the expectations for fasting and for what it means to keep the Sabbath. He exercises demons. That's one of the things emphasized in Mark so far and in the passage today. He's casting out demons. And what do they say? They call him the Holy One of God and the Son of God. He tells them to be quiet and to not tell anyone. Right? They're the ones that get it. (laughs) He's telling them not to say it. It's weird, right? Who is this Jesus? What is he doing? Everyone has their expectations and their understandings. But as we confront him, we actually need to listen to him. To let him reshape our expectations and our understanding. Because his agenda is not ours. So as we see these two groups that misunderstand who Jesus is and what he's doing, they're actually opposed to what he's doing. Let's allow Jesus' responses to them to confront us where we might be expecting different things as well, to reshape that in our own hearts and lives. And what we're going to see this morning as these kind of 
two uh, complaints or charges are made against Jesus. We're going to see that he is neither out of his mind nor demon-possessed. But he's actually ushering in God's supernatural kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus rescues us and he redefines us. That's kind of the big idea. These fall in line with those accusations. So we're seeing these two groups opposed to what Jesus is doing. They call him crazy and demon-possessed, but he's doing something different than they expect. And that's what's happening. So we're not going to be taking this passage in strict order, but kind of starting in the middle and then working our way out. Um, This kind of feature that you'll see in Mark, you can call it sandwiching, if you will, like there's two pieces of bread with the meat in the middle. So Jesus will often tell two stories. He'll start one, interrupt it with another one, and then finish the first one. And that means, one thing is they go together. They're meant to inform one another. But the inside kind of gives a key for interpreting the outer one as well. So while you could look at them separately, Mark clearly puts them together. So they're meant to be read that way. So let's look at these misunderstandings of who Jesus is and let him correct them for us. So first, Jesus is not demon-possessed, but instead rescues us from sin and from Satan's power as he ushers in God's supernatural kingdom. It's the second accusation, but we're looking at it first. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. There are a couple things kind of going on here. The scribes are from Jerusalem. That's the first time we get that. So they're actually these experts in religion from the city of David, the city where the temple is. So this might be actually kind of the like religious establishment's official view of Jesus. That he's possessed by a demon, that he's casting out demons by demons. So he's possessed by Beelzebul. We don't really know who that is. Um, It's kind of unclear. Context is very clear that it's a powerful demon. Um, I don't know if Queen knew when they said Beelzebub has the devil put aside for me. But um, Bohemian Rhapsody, come on guys. But we don't really know who that's referring to. But it's clear that it's a powerful, king, a powerful demon. And then it says he casts out demons by the prince of demons or the ruler of demons. And a thing that's interesting here is that they in no way deny what Jesus is doing. Right? They actually come to him and they say, he's casting out demons. Which, if you think about it, is clearly a good thing. Right? We would want that. But Jesus is rubbing these people the wrong way so much that they want to take what is clearly good and they say, no, it's evil. No, it's actually other demons casting out these demons. They're doing it to themselves. It'd be like saying we just gave you coffee during the fellowship time so that you'd fall asleep during the sermon. Right? They're working across purposes. It doesn't make any sense. But it just shows how much we're willing to justify or how much we're willing to rationalize something to make it line up with what we already think. Maybe some of you here have even had this thought. If God would just show me that he's real, if he would give me a sign, then I'd believe. But would you? 
They knew Jesus was casting out demons, but instead of praising God and listening to Jesus, they say, no, that's a demon doing that. It's evil. That's how much we're willing to invert this when we don't have eyes to see. And I would also say, do we not already have signs around us? Have we already not seen how God is at work? We just heard a story of it. If you talk to the people in the pews, chairs, we don't have pews, we hear hundreds of stories of God changing people, of God freeing people, of God giving us peace and wholeness, forgiveness of sins. We have these signs around us. The question is, do we believe them or do we just say, I'm glad that works for you? Or is the problem that what we want to be rescued from is something different? Is there a different expectation there? I think that's what's going on with the scribes, with people throughout the Gospels, really, as you approach this. They want to be delivered from the Romans, from the occupying army who is in Israel. Right? They want national freedom, worldly freedom, autonomy. They want the physical not the spiritual, right? That's what's going on here. It's like the paralytic that's lowered down. He says, your sins are forgiven. And like, what do we think when we read that, actually? We think, well, that's not what he wants. That's not what he needs. He needs to be able to walk. We can't see that. But Jesus actually said, that's what he really needs. That's the deeper issue and we have a hard time with this we live in this materialistic and I don't mean like purchase a bunch of things but materialism where um, everything is material that's around us natural I have to be able to touch it taste it feel it see it for it to be real and we come to a passage like this that talks about demons being cast out that talks about Beelzebul and Satan's names listed like five times in there and we say, oh, come on now. Right? We're too advanced for that. We're too enlightened for that. And as Christians, most of us, we wouldn't say that. In theory, we would say, no, that is real. That is the truth. But then we live day to day as if this material world is all there is. We see it in the way that we practice our prayer life. If we believe there's a spiritual realm as real as the physical realm right around us, that would change the way that we function. It would change the way that we live. It would say pay, prayer is actually powerful because that's how God brings things about in this world. Talked about that in Daniel, right? When the angel comes. Why? Because Daniel prayed. And yet we fall back into this default if I can just make it happen, I just need to deal with what's going on around me. But look at what Jesus says, how he responds in verses 23 to 27. He talks about uh, Satan casting out Satan, a kingdom being divided against itself can't stand. A house divided against itself will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. Right? That makes sense to us. Like if you have a football team and you're knocking each other out in practice, 
injuring people left and right, your team is getting weaker and you're worse. Right? That's kind of the picture of what's happening here. If you're divided against yourself, if you're knocking each other out, um, it's not building you up. It's not making you more powerful. It's making you weaker. The scribe's charge doesn't make any sense. He's not doing it by Satan's power. But then the question is, what is he doing? He says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. He's actually saying, I have bound Satan. I am the stronger man. That the ruler of this world is no match. That I have bound him and I am weakening his kingdom. That I am ushering in this supernatural kingdom of God and bringing people out of Satan's kingdom and into this. Right? That's uncomfortable for us to talk about. We don't like the spirituality of it. But that's what he's saying. And he stays on this spiritual theme in that next bit. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. He couples together this idea of being rescued from Satan and immediately follows it with this idea of forgiveness from sins. That's kind of what we have in Colossians 1. Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's go together. We know now how Jesus ultimately brings this about. That he is the sinless son of God who took our sin upon himself. That he died on a cross in our place. That we can be forgiven. And he works upon us by his Holy Spirit. That he actually gives us faith. He unites us to Jesus. He works in us so that we become more like him. He indwells us. And reshapes us in the image of God. Jesus does this for you. If you are in Christ. And it's supernatural. And it's spiritual. And it's real. Even if it's not something we can physically see. If your expectation is that you can come to Jesus. And he's going to fix all of your problems or give you everything that you want, or make your life easy, then you're going to be frustrated with Jesus. Because that's not what he came to do. Not now. He will come again one day. He will set all things right. He will remove the sins, the consequences of sin, the presence of sin, and all its effects. But right now we live in this period between his resurrection and ascension and his second coming where he has conquered sin and death. And yet it's all around us. Yet we still experience all of the pain and the heartache of sin and its effects. Yet we can know true peace. We can know true freedom. We can know true joy. Because Jesus has actually met our deeper need. He's given us true freedom in life. He's given us his own spirit. He's reconciled us to God. And Paul tells us this is the reality of our fight too. He tells us in Ephesians, 
right? That our true battle is not with flesh and blood. That's where we want to leave it. It's what we can see. It's the easier fight. He says that it's against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But he has freed us. We are no longer slaves to sin and death. That passage about binding the strong man and freeing them comes out of Isaiah 49. It says, will anyone be able to free us from the mighty man? He says, yes. I will set the captives free. So he's actually doing something deeper in ushering in this supernatural kingdom. When our expectation might be a natural one. Just quickly, I don't want to leave verses 29 and 30 hanging because uh, I think we read that and we're like, uh-oh, am I in trouble here? Did I do that? Um, I don't think that's the main point of this text at all, um, but it is there. And Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then it explains why. It's saying, for, he, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So if you want to talk about that a lot more, I'm happy to get together and we can, we can jam on that. But um, I think it's clear, clear to say that throughout the, all of the Bible, there's no example of anyone that actually seeks forgiveness, that actually repents and is denied forgiveness. Right, so if we're looking at that, there's no example of that ever happening. Um, and it seems as though anyone that would be worried about this sin has not committed it. <laughs> Because the very anxiety and fear of it is actually a tenderheartedness toward the work of Jesus not being evil, right? Because that's a pretty serious claim. Um, one commentator just kind of puts it like this, kind of easy way to understand it. The eternal sin is perpetual unbelief that refuses to call what Jesus does good and calls it evil instead. In that state, forgiveness can never come because forgiveness is only found by embracing Jesus as the Son of God. So it makes sense if the Holy Spirit applies salvation to us. If you say the Holy Spirit is doing evil work, you're not open to the redemption that he offers. So if you kind of just track the logic of that. If you want to talk about that more, we can do that. But uh, I don't think that's the main point. So we're going to move on. The main point is Jesus is not demon-possessed. He's actually working by the Holy Spirit, bringing about God's kingdom. Rescuing us from sin and from Satan's power as he ushers in God's kingdom. Jesus is also not out of his mind, but instead redefines the family. This is kind of the bread of the sandwich. It starts in verses 20 and 21, then resumes in 31 to 35. So this crowd that's mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, if you... If you read through and did your homework beforehand, um, just kidding. I mean, you could have, but uh, it talks about this crowd that's just pressing on him that, I was talking to Cassie about this before, like, I worry about my toddler coughing in my face. I don't like that. And this says Jesus has so many diseased people trying to get to him that he has to have a boat ready so he doesn't get crushed. Like, 
a stampede of diseased folks running at you. So it says that crowd's gathered again. (laughs) That's what we're talking about here. So they grab, they gather again, and they're all around them so much that the disciples can't even eat. Jesus can't even eat. It's pressing in that much. So Jesus' family hears about it. They're probably back in Nazareth where Jesus grew up, and Jesus and the disciples are probably at Peter's house again. That's the only house we've been in so far, and they go home back. Um, So probably in Capernaum. And they hear about what's going on, and um, they don't get it. They have these other expectations for him. It's interesting, like even Mary, because Mary is blessed that she believed God's promises when he told her, right? Mary, did you know? We sing that? Yes, she knew. Um, She knows who Jesus is, but she doesn't understand how it's going to happen either. And we see that happening here. So they're coming. And we don't know if they're concerned about their reputation because it's their family um, or if they're concerned for Jesus' safety. But whatever it is, they're actually opposed to what Jesus is doing here. They're coming out to seize him. They want to arrest him, take him by force, stop him from what he's doing when he's about his father's business. But we saw in the middle section that Jesus isn't possessed, but is actually filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's not out of his mind either. He's actually the most sane person to ever live. So what does Jesus do? It picks back up in verses 31 to 35. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You read the last part of that and you might tend to agree with the family. Say he kind of is out of his mind. That sounds a little wacky. Um, It's a weird thing to say. But Jesus is actually showing us something about the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus has different priorities. And we need to take on his priorities instead of trying to force ours onto him. And this idea of family is one that hits hard. Especially here in our culture where family is often the most important thing. That we close up with our family around us. And in many ways it was for them too, if not more so, that family actually had a claim on you. They had rights over you. But Jesus says, my family is not my Lord. I am the Lord. And he redefines how we think about family. He introduces this spiritual family. Those in God's kingdom, those obeying God's will. He actually says that that takes priority over the natural family. Especially if they're opposing God's will, like Jesus' family is here. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It doesn't mean natural family is unimportant. It is. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care for our natural families. We should. The Bible says a lot of things about that. Jesus is very loving and respectful and caring for his family. We see that in other places. But that's not what's being talked about here. Right? We also don't want to say this is something that says you have to withdraw from your family. 
We have a word for religions that make you sever ties with your family. They're called cults. This is not one of them. We're actually encouraged to keep those lines of communication open. That God works through those things. But the Bible also teaches, and what's hinted at here, is that being united together by the Holy Spirit is actually a stronger tie than being united by blood. That's happening here. Now some may think Jesus is being rude to his mom and family. The truth is we don't know what Jesus says to his family. Just because it doesn't say that Jesus didn't go out and talk to them doesn't mean that he didn't. I would guess that Jesus actually went out and talked to them after this. But that's not the point, so Mark doesn't mention it. Right? So we don't want to read into it things that aren't there. But when we do judge Jesus like that, when we bring these things in, we think Jesus should act differently. We're actually trying to force something on him instead of letting him shape us. We know Jesus was without sin, that he perfectly honored his father and mother. And if we think that he didn't, that's actually a confusion on our part of what it looks like to honor father and mother. What could be the most loving and honoring thing a child could do for their parent, or vice versa, but to fully obey God's will? It has to take priority. Pursuing God's will above all else will naturally flow out into these things. You see that in some of the commands for what it looks like for families. But when this really rubs is when we ask, what is the priority in my life? Is the priority in my life obeying the will of God or um, my will for my family or my family's will for me? can go either way there. Are we hesitant to pursue God's will because of pressure coming from family? Are we willing to put expectations on family members that would maybe keep them near to us when God might be calling them away? We might try and keep them in the realm when God's calling them out into something else. It's hard for us to deal with those things, isn't it? People that we've grown up with, that we've given our lives for and to. But to say, God, they're in your hands. They belong to you. I trust you. To actually hold it loosely and say, what God calls me to, that I will do. Another question could be, are you disengaged from the church family because everything revolves around your natural family? That's an easy one, right? It's so easy to fill up all of our calendars, to do so many different things. There are so many expectations put on us for what our kids need to do, for what we need to do. We don't want to rob them of any opportunities, right? We want to give them everything. But is that God's will for us? Or is that our culture telling us what we need? These are the questions that we have to ask and reconcile as we look at what God's calling us to in our families. Another question is, how do we spend our time and money? Is the priority on having everything 
or providing all these opportunities and doing all these things to the neglect of care for the church family. That we have a responsibility there. It's countercultural to think like this and to live like this. And you might be thinking that I'm out of my mind. Maybe I'll take that as a compliment. They said it about Jesus, right? So. But really, we think that. I thought it about my parents. I thought they were nuts for how much they loved Jesus and wanted to follow him and didn't do other fun stuff. It's ironic I'm a pastor now, but um, yeah. Yeah. There's so many voices speaking to us on what family looks like. And he enters here and says, all of you around me, if you're doing the will of God, you're my brother and sister and mother. There's this language in there too. It's a little bit hidden in the English, but it's there in the Greek. There's this insider versus outsider language. That the family is actually on the outside opposed to God's will. They come out from they're at the door while Jesus says, you're circled around me. You're with me. At the same time, don't miss what else Jesus is saying here. That in ushering in God's supernatural kingdom, Jesus not only rescues us, but he re redefines us and he calls us into his family. Right? That's the beauty of it. Not that it's just us together, but that it's us with him. He brings us in. He makes his father our father. That we're adopted in to a good father who gives good gifts to his children. Who takes care of us. Who gives us everything we need. Who makes us co-heirs with Christ. And we'll spend all of eternity with him. This is good news. And it's worth it. To do this, we'll have to give things up. And it's worth it. Jesus isn't demon-possessed. And he's not out of his mind. He's just doing something we wouldn't ever have expected. He's ushering in a supernatural kingdom that goes so much deeper than we ever would have guessed or ever could have imagined. 